Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 5, Bloody Mary. Let's get this show on the road. Drew, are you ready for our weekly recap? I am, but as we have discussed and we're going to share with our audience, we do want to give a content warning here. This episode and our conversations about this episode are going to touch on the subjects of abuse and suicide. So we do want to reach out to our fans and let you know if you are uncomfortable with the subject matter or today is not the day for it, feel free to pause and come back another time or skip this episode entirely if need be. But know that we will be here next week with another episode ready to have you back with us. Take care of yourselves, lovelies. And I want to give another warning before the recap for me. Ooh. I can be a bit superstitious. Like, I'm oh? not... I. How to put this properly? I am not putting salt around the edge of my bed to make sure I'm not being attacked in the night. I'm not <laughs> going to go that far. But as we've discussed both on and off the show, I've had a few supernatural experiences in my own life. And I am recording this in a very small, dark room with a mirror hanging right in front of me. Oh. <laughs> So That's a, a very strange choice for tonight's episode. <laughs> yeah, it occurred to me, and I've already said it once, so I will be watching my choice of words. <laughs> okay. But uh, I can get away with one more during the recap, and following that, I will try to just, you know, refer to Mary as Mary. But I'm ready for a recap. Amazing. Would you like to try to do it in three or two minutes? I think two minutes. I've gotten pretty good at this. Challenge myself. Two minutes. All right. Three, two, one. Boop. We begin the episode with a very classic horror movie trope of a bunch of girls at a slumber party. Uh, we have a little bit of truth or dare. And of course, we have the cute little joke of the truth. Oh, do you want to kiss so-and-so? No, I'll take the dare. Ha ha ha. Uh, we then have the classic, uh, what I feel is like a classic we've seen in a bunch of horror movies and a bunch of shows trope almost of let's send one of the girls into the bathroom and try to summon Bloody Mary by saying her name three times over a mirror. We then have the young girl go into the bathroom. She says it. Nothing happens. And the friends slam on the door, uh, pranking her. Uh, Dad comes home, or comes downstairs at least, and says, hey, guys, be quiet. I'm trying to go to bed. And then Dad meets an untimely demise in front of a mirror in front of a bathroom, allegedly from the specter that they have summoned. This ends our cold open. We get into the episode. We find his obituary. Oh, God, we have to hurry up. We find his obituary. We, uh, the, the brothers decide to go after this, thinking it might be something supernatural. They start interviewing a little bit. They hear one of the girls say that they think it's her fault for summoning her. They uh, start investing a bit. They can't find the so-called Mary in the town anywhere. Uh, there's another death at her hands. They start investigating with another girl who they kind of roped into the, their investigation. They eventually trigger it down that it's a haunted mirror she is living in. seconds. It's a haunted mirror she's living in, and they go after the mirror, and they smash it, and they win. Okay, wow. 22 seconds left. <laughs> I realized I was getting towards the end, and I had to wrap up, but it really... I feel like I don't think I really missed anything, did I? No, I mean, in terms... I think in terms of, like, this story, like, this episode's story and narrative, I think you did pretty well. I actually quite enjoy it. The only thing I would say with regards to this is that, you know, the Mary that they were looking for is actually is somebody who was technically murdered by her her boyfriend, right? 
Yes. That is the spirit that they're looking for. Yes, it is a, uh, in a bit of a similar to the first one, it is a woman scorned. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm actually happy that you're bringing this up. So if we're looking at the past, uh, you know, five episodes that we've looked at, mm-hmm. so the pilot is a woman scorned. Bloody Mary is a woman scorned. Phantom Traveler is a demon mm-hmm. who, you know, technically like doesn't quite have a gender. Yeah. Uh, same thing for Wendigo, not quite specific on the gender. Uh, and Dead in the Water is a creepy child. So technically, within five episodes, we've gotten like two female villains, which, you know, for a show that doesn't actually have that many female characters is actually pretty interesting. True. Also, both are based off very widespread uh, myths and legends. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we discussed in the first in pilot, the woman in white is quite a famous story. It's heard all over the world. There's multiple variations of it. Mm -hmm. Same for this Mm -hmm. episode. The stories are widespread. There's thousands of variants. I actually did try Mm -hmm. to look it up for this episode. And much like they did during the episode, there's just too many possibilities and not Mm -hmm. a single one that really goes, well, that's likely the origin. There's just, there's too many. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Let's get back to that in critical time. Because Mm -hmm. for now, I'd like to move into the long game where there are a few things that I would like to mention here without necessarily explaining them. But I would just like for us to note them. Oh. So that we can then come back to them eventually for a further analysis. I'm intrigued. You're intrigued? Okay. Well, I have been reading a lot about queer coding in the past few weeks. Okay. The Hollywood tradition that started back in the 50s of queer coding characters so that they still meet the standards uh, of television that were very traditional, almost puritanical at the time. Uh, so that there were no openly queer characters in TV or film, but queer coding was a way for queer storytellers to include queer elements to their stories. And there's a lot of discussion right now within the supernatural fandom about which characters have been queer coded, if any. Hmm. And so I've been reading a lot about that. And there's just a couple of things that I would like for us to mention, again, without analyzing it, because I don't think we're quite ready to do that. But just so that we keep it in mind for an episode where we are ready to dive into that. How do you feel about that? I'm very intrigued. I'd love to go through the show with that kind of lens. Amazing. So let's get started with that. Mm -hmm. So there's the moment at the very beginning where Sam says, you know, that a, a mirror reveals all of your lies, all your secrets, and that they're a true reflection of your soul. So Sam is saying this to Dean. And if you pay close attention to Dean's reaction, you can see that like his eyebrows kind of like fall and his eyes widen a little bit Hmm. as if he's like, oh my God, almost as if he's taking it a bit personally, like, oh my God, what would a mirror reflect of my soul if I were to look into the mirror in this context, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's instance number one. Instance number two is when they're talking uh, to the police officer who investigated Mary's case. Right. And he says, Mary spent her last living moments trying to expose this guy's secret. And again, the camera focuses on Dean and his eyes widen again. He's like, Hmm. oh my God, like exposing somebody's secrets. Third instance is when Dean says... To Sam, you know, the, about Jess, the nightmares, calling her name out in the middle of the night, it's going to kill you. And we're going to notice also at the end of the episode that Sam sees Jess in the crowd, you know, as a woman in white mm-hmm. as they're driving by down the street. And this is 
a little bit of foreshadowing for Dean in terms of how he copes when he loses somebody that he quote unquote cares about. And we're going to leave it at that for now. Oh, I'm so intrigued. <laughs> like, I've always known there was a portion of the audience, and I know myself, well, I'm sure I'll fall into that portion of the audience, that has, in, a, in their own fandom, have sort of seen Dean as a queer character. Yeah, I've always sort of seen this side of the fandom, and I've always sort of heard, like, hey, there's always the fan fiction writing community or, like, the fan theories. But I've always sort of gotten this vibe that the Dean being a queer character was a little bit more than just a fan theory. And it is. I really like that idea. And mm-hmm. and there's the two sides of the coin. Let's pessimist, optimist. The pessimistic is we are reading into this too much and the reveal was made because they decided to make the reveal. Or the optimistic, and I kind of really hope route, which is the these hints were littered out throughout the entire series, as you are suggesting now, and were very much intentional so that when the reveal does eventually come, it's not as shocking. So I have a lot of thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. The first being... When you say maybe we're reading a little bit too much into this. And if we're saying this about this, only this episode, then yes, I would agree with you. I wouldn't be able to write a paper about the queer coding of Dean Winchester based solely on this episode. It wouldn't really hold. But there are now 15 years worth of TV production where there are very clear instances of him being not even queer coded but showing romantic affection towards somebody of the same sex. And so I think that discourse of, you know, you're reading too much into it is is unfortunately something that's being said by people. And that discourse of you're reading too much into it inevitably leads to the erasure of queer characters. Because, you know, the whole idea of queer coding was to be able to kind of hide behind the the code of conduct of Hollywood at the time and to say, oh no, you know, like this is something that anybody could could feel and, you know, like this is not a queer character. Unfortunately, over the years, it takes, a, it takes on a very perverse meaning. But if we're looking at queer coding in its original meaning, what we're seeing on TV and what we're hearing the characters say is important. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it serves anyone right to say that we are overreading it. I think that we have to just take the evidence that is in front of us. And that's really what I'm trying to do here. And I guess we'll see where that takes us. No, and I would agree. I feel like at the end of the day, everyone reads the character the way they... And basically until the creator or someone involved in the writing team steps forward and says, I did X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. we can only speculate. I agree with the readings you have given. They are logical. I will admit I definitely noticed a few times Dean's reactions and it actually led me to a theory in the episode itself that we were going to find out that when they went to the antique shop and summoned her for a final battle, she was going to go after Dean instead of Sam because Mm. Dean had some sort of deep secret. It Mm. now almost, I think, is better because she does not. She does go after Sam. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's because Dean's secret, as much as he felt he has one, isn't you know, I let someone die or I'm responsible for someone's death. His is a deeper secret that is more personal. Drew, you are hitting the nail on the head. No, it's true, literally. And I know that nail jokes are not funny (laughs) in the context of Supernatural at the moment. But wow. So this leads us really into into story time, you know, where we talk about the the relationships that the brothers have and like the episode as if it's sacred because what you described is the difference between guilt and shame 
right? Guilt is the idea that I did something wrong and so I must atone. And that's what Sam feels about Jess. Mm -hmm. But shame is I did something wrong. Therefore, I am bad. I do not have value. I am not worthy of love or anything. I cannot be loved. From the reading that you've made, I would say that Sam suffers from guilt, but Dean suffers from shame. So I wanted to ask you, like, how do you feel about Sam in this episode? Because there's a lot going on. As much as I've talked about Dean here, mm -hmm. really, this is a Sam episode, right? True. This, this, it, so, Dean, Dean has a lot of really interesting characteristics in this episode, but it is a Sam episode. It's a Sam episode. So let's talk about Sam a little bit. Like, what were, what were your impressions of him? I think this episode really, like, as you said, it really focuses on that guilt aspect of him. It's really mm -hmm. a... We need to get past the Jess thing so that he can develop as a character more. Mm -hmm. So this episode allows him ultimately to confront it, not move on completely, but at least have a level of acceptance that... Mm -hmm. re that it all reality, though we do get that nice reveal that he's been dreaming about that, that death for a few days leading mm -hmm. up to it. What were you going to do? Like, let's really take a step back here and go, what would Sam have done? Hey, Jess, um, I have a history of fighting demons in my family. Right, demons are real. Um, one killed my mother, and I keep having dreams of the one that killed my mother killing you in the same way, and I now need to, I guess, let you know and then find a way to stop. Like, how? What are you going to do? Well, I mean, especially with Sam, who was trying to turn the page on all of that, right? Like, he was probably chalking it up to, oh, I'm just, you know, this is just a stress dream. I mean, I can't imagine that Sam Winchester during his time in, in college wouldn't have had, you know, PTSD dreams of everything of his entire childhood and teenage years. So he was probably chalking it up to that. Heck, I wouldn't be surprised if we discover at some point that while he was in college and trying to get away from the supernatural lifestyle, that he didn't encounter something supernatural and either just sort of turn a blind eye to it and pretend it never happened or dealt with it as he could and just never spoke about it. You're smiling. Well, we, will, we will learn about that <laughs> later, my dear. <laughs> I, I saw you smile as I said that. I tried to finish the that laughing. We will learn about that later. <laughs> well, so I like your point about Sam finally being able to like start turning the page on Jess. Mm -hmm. and, and I think to me, like that is, you know, that's the story of this episode, like through guilt. And, and guilt is like, it's not allowing him to open up to, to Dean, right? Uh, you know, when he's having nightmares and Dean goes, you know, sooner or later, we're going to have to talk about this. And yeah. this is Dean, again, like trying to, like doing his best to try to draw Sam into a conversation. Sam is just shutting it down time after time. But that's guilt. That is guilt 101. I think the biggest thing with guilt, especially when it's guilt you're putting on yourself in that way, is mm -hmm. you feel like you deserve it. Yeah. Like, what's the point of having a conversation about this situation when you already have 100% stated the fact that I'm the one at fault, I'm the one who fucked up, I'm the one who has to pay for this. Yeah. Like, the conversation's useless. The conversation, well, I mean, yes and no, because having a conversation about it allows you to unburden yourself in a way, right? Because when you're, and this is something that Brene Brown talks a lot in her books about shame, she says that just to be able to speak to shame, and, and even in this case, it applies to guilt as well, to be able to speak of it removes some of the, the, the feelings power 
right? So that you regain some power from that. So just being able to, to voice it and to say it is actually really quite powerful. So while I, I absolutely agree that Sam probably sees it as useless, yeah, I do think that being able to speak about it would help him. But that's 100% my point, is, <laughs> okay. is the conversation will fix it. The conversation yeah. is the first step to moving on. He's just mm-hmm. refusing to have it because yeah. he doesn't think it'll help. You're entirely right about that. And, and it's interesting because the episode concludes on like a, a fairly ominous piece of dialogue, right? Where like Sam says, you know, yeah. you're my brother and I die for you. But, you know, there are some things that I'm going to keep to myself. And again, Dean reacts in a very strange way where he doesn't push it. He's like, oh, okay. Like, I don't want to have to tell him about my secrets, so I'm just going to let him have his privacy. So there's just that, like, push and pull between the brothers where you're seeing, like, while they do have, you know, codependency is starting to set in, like, they do still have, like, their own worlds that they're not ready to let the other into. And it's just interesting to see so early in the season. I have another point to make here. Go ahead. While we're talking about the dynamic between the brothers, there's one thing that we're starting to see, and we're starting to see like a class difference between Dean and like the people that they're encountering in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying specifically Dean because Sam, because he is college educated, he has more class mobility, right? So he f- he he fits in in more social situations than Dean. Yeah, And so when they walk into the wake, you know, Dean goes, I feel like we're underdressed because they're showing up in flannels and jeans mm-hmm. and ripped jeans and everybody else is wearing a suit. And this is the first real moment where we see a contrast between the normal world and the supernatural world and the world of the brothers. And again, in this case, it's Sam who's the one who's able to help the duo navigate in this world, right? From the guy at the morgue to Charlie, like he's the one building the connections because, you know, arguably Dean doesn't usually have to have those conversations when he's Mm -hmm. on a hunt alone. He just, like you said, he just thinks about what to shoot the bad thing with. Yeah. That's just the way, like he's very action oriented. And I would argue that there's also like a class difference there that makes it harder for him to, to connect with, with people. I think it also shows a disconnect in even just the way they perceive the world. This might focus a little more on Dean than Sam, but I think they both fall into this category. They knew they were going to someone's home to Mm -hmm. try to investigate the situation and then discover, oh, hey, it's literally the funeral. There would be that moment, kind of like in um, previous episodes, where you'd go for a wardrobe change. You'd have something more appropriate to wear. But to them, a death is almost so blasé that it doesn't really come across as a thing that they need to get dressed up for. To them, it's another dead body. You are so right. I mean, that's so true. I hadn't thought about it that way. Thank you for bringing that up. That's so interesting. Wow. Like, even... I feel like the morgue less so, because you've also got the morgue attendant who's a little bit like, oh, check out this body. (laughs) Like, he's kind of into it. But then again, that is someone who has... I don't want to say has made a career choice to work in a morgue, but if you're going to get... But he sort of has. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sorry. Like, if... Let's... I don't know what it takes to become a technician in a morgue like that, whether you... What level of training that requires. I imagine there's more than just, like, 
going to McDonald's to flip burgers, you probably have to have some formal training in those areas. I know I've heard the off story, whether it be from like a television series or from like, I've actually met a few people in these scenarios where you kind of grow into it as a family business if it's a smaller like mm-hmm. town. But there's some level of you, if you're working at a morgue, you are demystified by death a little bit, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it almost, you know what, actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, I think it plays a great mirror, ironic for the situation, to the previous <laughs> situation. They go to a funeral yeah. and they are so outlandish because they don't see death as this huge thing. To them, it's so mm-hmm. blasé. But then you go to the morgue and you have someone who's, I'm around dead bodies all the time. I can yeah. see the wonder in it. And they are yeah. just as interested. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting too because this morgue attendant, you know, he swindles them out of a lot of money, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Dean is is upset about this. Like, so there's there's also this idea that people who are more comfortable with death just sort of keep their spirit to themselves or like they're like they keep their cool a lot more in those situations. You know, it's not it's death is not an event or a big deal like it becomes something that you that is just a part of your life and that and that i mean it's normalized you've they, they, yeah. you've taken something that there was a huge stigma for yeah. and for those who have a stigma for death it's a very valid one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you are confronted with it constantly you normalize it you have to to be able to do your job and here we see that not only is the morgue attendant, but both Sam and Dean have normalized death to the point that seeing a body with its eyes literally missing is just yeah. like, it's work. It's investigation time. It's not, yeah. wow. Yeah, this is just another Tuesday for us. <laughs> I have one last thing that I want to bring up, unless, uh, in, in story time, unless there's something that you wanted to bring up about the, the, the boys. No, you, you, you've really touched on most of the points I wanted to hit. I've, I've gotten through most of what I've wanted to get through for them. So I'm intrigued to see what else you have up your sleeves. Well, it's just a little tiny thing where, you know, Sam, because there's there's like a, a bit of a banter between the two about whether or not it's okay for Sam to be the one calling the spirit. You know, Dean goes, ah, oh, no, there's no way I'm letting you do this. You know, like big brother protective mm-hmm. type of, of thing. And Sam goes, no, like she'll come. You know, he's feeling guilty, so he knows that she will come. And And this is... I think the first instance of one brother acting in self-sacrifice. Okay. And that comes back a lot. <laughs> I can imagine that. Yes. And Sam, so in this case, Sam is the one who, who says, you know what? Like, I will take one for the team. I will call her. She will come and I will take care of her. And Dean isn't so sure about that, right? Because he's seen the way that Sam has been acting. And I think that there's a little bit of fear that this is like, a suicide mission for him? Yeah, I was going to touch on that too a little bit. Yeah. Like you brought it up and it, it reminded me this is a thought I had during the episode. I think there's a level of Sam in that moment where he's like so guilt-ridden by it and it's so mm-hmm. top of mind because of conversations he had previously with um, Charlie that he is feeling so guilt-ridden over Jess that he is okay doing it because he knows that the worst case scenario is I fail and she kills me. I deserve it. I almost yeah. want it. Like, it isn't a suicide mission in the, like, I'm risking my life, which he is. It's a suicide mission in the, if I die, I don't mind it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Dean is afraid of, right? That's mm-hmm. his entire reluctance to this whole thing, I think. Yeah, I think there's, there's both sides of it. There's the, I want to protect my brother. I don't want to put him in a scenario where his death is possible. 
That's always a clear indication. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also the part of him that thinks you were so willing to do this. I don't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you're too willing to do this, Sammy. Yeah. Like I don't like. Where is this going, buddy? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think that covers the brothers very well. We do learn a lot about Sam. If it's more of a, we get to see him grow. Then we learn more about his secrets in his past. As we've discovered, there are some secrets in Dean that we're still not getting out, whether they be... Mm-hmm. And again, I'm I'm coming in it blind. I don't know what those secrets are. I definitely, as much as we've discovered them as possible signs of queer coding, I am still very convinced they are there. No one can, no one can convince me otherwise. There mm-hmm. is some level of he is keeping a secret from us. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, thanks to our confrontation at the uh, antique shop, it does not seem to be... That he let someone die, so it's something else. Yep, there you go. So I think we can move into critical time. Amazing. Is there anything you'd like to start with? Because I sort of have a rant about this episode. (laughs) I'm excited for your rant. Uh, I kind of (sighs) tried to come up with my critical theory for this episode, and it really was to go into the legends. And as Mm -hmm. I said earlier, there's just too many angles. There's no real concise where it began. I mean, I feel like if you look at most common myths in mythology i'm thinking like the legend of a werewolf or dracula they do have some roots there are some origin stories that are a little Mm -hmm. more origin than others Mm -hmm. but she really is a mystery i almost wish we could figure this out because it amazes me how many variants of this myth exist and how it became so widespread Uh, i mean like i was a kid it was a thing that we knew about i don't think i ever actually Mm -hmm. did it but, you know, I was, a, I was a kid at a summer camp. I heard kids who had sleepovers and they tried it and, like, something spooky happened. Mm-hmm. This affected my real life. You know, it's interesting. There's, like, this line at the very beginning of the episode where this little girl, you know, this 12-year-old says, it doesn't matter who she is. And mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of it because is that saying that the origin of this particular myth doesn't matter because it is real? Or is that saying, like, it doesn't matter who she is because her exist not her existence, but, like, her identity is not important? Like, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. But it just, it was such an interesting comment coming from the mouth of a 12-year-old that I, like, it hit me. I can kind of draw on that. I, I didn't even think of the line, but now that you say it, I can kind of picture it a bit better. And I think it kind of comes back to... The idea of, I think, the latter, it doesn't matter who she is. It's the Mm. work that she does. Mm. Oh. And I think it kind of something we do see a lot in, I'm going to say it right now, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and superhero movies. Mm. It's not a matter of who wears the mask. It's the symbol of the mask. Oh, you know, (laughs) this is so so funny because today I walked in on my seven-year-old watching... Uh, the latest Spider-Man movie that came out on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, you know, there's a lot of Spider-Man, Mom. I'm like, okay, like, you know, to, can you, do you want to tell me more about it? And he starts telling me, you know, Peter Parker uh, died, and now there's a lot of other Spider-Man around. It's just really funny that you touched upon that, because it's true. At the end of the day, what matters is the work that is being done, not necessarily the person who does it. And that, in a funny way, sort of relates to the Winchester brothers, hmm. right? Because they're doing work, and they, they're not getting any recognition for it. Yeah. So they're doing this anonymously as well, 
So it's just really interesting, the parallel between the two, between Bloody Mary and, and the Winchester boys. No, it's a very it's a very interesting view of them as well that they really they I mean they are unsung heroes. I mean they're in a situation mm-hmm. where it's kind of hard to be celebrated for what you do. Yes. I mean obviously the person you're saving, that one person who's aware in almost every episode, gets that thank you, which we'll mm-hmm. get to later as well. Yeah, I, I think as far as a comment goes from a 12-year-old girl at a slumber party, surprisingly deep of her that you're right it doesn't <laughs> you're right i mean it's really just it's a legend that has it has it, it's, it lays at stake i mean mm-hmm. one day i mean i for I, I i pray not but you know within the supernatural universe one day another poor woman will be wrongfully taken from this world in mm-hmm. front of a mirror and maybe come the next incarnation now that we've bummed everyone out <laughs> yes i can't believe we bum people out and brought up spider-man at the same time that's really hard to I do know, eh? isn't that funny it's the best boy oh we can go on for spider-man for hours trust me my god but you have a rant boy do i have a rant oh i'm excited okay so let me just pull up my sleeves here a little disclaimer when i first watched this episode Four or five years ago, whenever, four years ago, whenever I started actually watching Supernatural, I watched, so I watched this episode post Me Too. And I think for anyone who has seen this episode for the first time post Me Too, you know that this is not an episode that could be produced and aired today without being heavily critiqued. It made me almost not want to press play on the next episode. That's how upset I was. And this is why. So we've got this teenage girl, Charlie, talking about a boyfriend who she loves, but quote unquote, scares her. Red flag. Mm -hmm. She breaks up with him and he threatens to kill himself, you know, to get her back. Giant red flag. Yeah. And she and, and out of maybe anger or frustration or fear, she tells him, go ahead and walks out. Now, I just want to be very clear about this. This was an abusive relationship. Okay. Women who try to walk out from abusive relationships sometimes do not survive it. And I'm speaking in gender binary here, but this is valid across the gender spectrum. Keeping that in mind, Charlie still carries guilt from this moment, right? Since her boyfriend really does end up taking his own life. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, like a, 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 a rumbling when Charlie says, go ahead. The universe that they're creating with the sound the production really wants us to feel the weight of her words, right? The weight of her guilt. Mm-hmm. And they want us to disapprove of those words. You know, she says that she should have believed him. But again, what would she have done? Was she supposed to stay with him against her will? Or was she supposed to stay with someone who scared her? She's like 16 or 17 years old. She's a child who is putting her own safety behind the feelings of a boy who was manipulating her. <sighs> Sorry, I need to take a breather. And while you take that breather, I am going to say I really appreciate something. You, uh, first of all, a thousand percent agree. There is a lot of problematic situations here, and I flagged it right away. Mm. But I also want to touch on something you said, and I want to thank you. You were speaking in gender binary terms, but it does go both ways. And mm. I will be very transparent with you and our listeners. I was on the other end of this. Mm-hmm. I had to walk away from a relationship that I was afraid of that I realized I was being kept in out of fear. And it was the scariest thing I'd ever done because the threat was made as well by this person that they would take them their own life if I walked away. And I 
spent so long making sure that there was a support group there for her, that I was checking in with friends of friends to, you know, find out, is she okay? Are the right steps being taken? You know, are people taking her seriously about her depression? Are, you know, like, yes, I'm walking away from my safety and my health and my sanity, but I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And it took so many attempts before it actually worked. We ended that relationship a dozen times before I finally was able to really walk away. It's scary. Wow. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you for, for like sharing that with us. I think that that really puts this whole episode into perspective because this, this scenario that they're describing is real for a lot of people. Whether or not the threat of ending one's life is followed through, the threat is there. Mm-hmm. It's something that we do here. And in those cases, it's, there's also the possibility that it's not only their life that they're going to take, but also the one of, of the person walking out. And so this is very real. And I was really quite upset to see that the production team was trying to make us feel like she was, like Charlie was in the wrong. Because what really upsets me about the interaction is that neither Dean or Sam actually tells her that it's not her fault. And that, to me, from a critical standpoint, it means that the production team wanted the viewers to see Charlie as the guilty party. They wanted us to see her as the reason that her boyfriend took his own life. And further, again, to that point, narratively, that puts Charlie in the same category as murderers. You know, a shoemaker who killed his wife, Samson, who killed his teenage mistress, uh, Jill, who killed an eight-year-old boy. Charlie is not responsible for the death of her boyfriend. No. And no one in the episode ever tells her that. And that makes me so angry. And, and yes, Dean says it in the car later, but he doesn't say it to her. And Sam tells her that she should try to forgive herself. But that's quite different from it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And if we're thinking about why that happens or what that, why that has to happen, it's because the whole goal of Charlie's narrative arc is to show that guilt isn't necessarily earned. Like, you can feel guilty without necessarily being guilty of the action that you feel yeah. guilty for. And, and that shows up for Sam, where he feels guilty for Jess's death, even though he's not guilty of it. And this begins a very damaging pattern of using the pain and often the death of female characters just to create an emotional reaction for one or both of the brothers. Yeah, I mean, I will admit that I kind of read that situation slightly differently with the view, one, personal experience, and then two, now, the way you've talked about it, I definitely think it's it's problematic either way. Mm-hmm. But I do think, and maybe I'm just reading it weirdly, but I think that part of it, okay, well, let's address it in two parts. Part one is <laughs> neither of them in the moment saying to her it's not her fault and trying to mm-hmm. convince her that she's, you know, she did the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think Dean is the one thinking it. Sam is the one who doesn't want to say it because that means confronting his own problems. Yes. Agreed. And I think from a show writing perspective is not brought up to avoid that conflict in the moment. Because mm-hmm. I don't think you could bring up the it's not your fault without the brothers having a bit of like a, uh, how do we navigate yeah. this? Yeah, abs- I agree with you. But, and I do think, again, trying to word this the best way I can with, that, with, with the sensitivity in mind. The re- I think it almost comes to the reason she survives the episode mm-hmm. is 
to prove that it's not her fault. Fair. Okay. Yes, I will. I will take that. I think problematic as it is, mm-hmm. I feel like it could have been addressed better. We're getting to mm-hmm. crossroads territory here. I'm afraid of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I ultimately think what they were trying to do narratively in this episode was put someone in a scenario that mirrors Sam, yes. so that when they save the day and she clearly survives and everything's good, it's the showrunners. Very blunt way of saying, see, she shouldn't have been guilty about it because it's not her fault. That's why she lived just like Sam. I entirely agree with you. I understand narratively what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But it to me, it doesn't excuse the fact that, again, they're using her pain in order to further like the emotional depth of, of Sam in this case. And I think that if this was an isolated case, I wouldn't be so upset about it. I'd just be like, oh, well, that sucks and and move on from it. But this is something that comes back time and time again in the series where female characters are victimized so much and brutally sometimes just to see how the brothers will react. And that doesn't sit very well with me because it's a pattern. Mm -hmm. It's not just an isolated incident. It's something that is well known, unfortunately, in a lot of pop Mm -hmm. culture. I believe the term they use is the lady in the fridge. Have you heard this trope before? Yes, I have actually. It's a fairly common trope. I feel like the term we hear is woman in the refrigerator or stuffed in the fridge. Yeah. If you look it up on TV tropes, you'll find it. It actually comes from a Green Lantern comic. We're really really pulling into our uh, our DC and Marvel (laughs) uh, fandom today. I know, right? But it came from a comic that was very, very heavily criticized that... A character comes home to find their, uh, I forget if it's a wife or a love interest, murdered and hacked up and stuffed in the fridge. And it's overly gruesome. It's overly gory. It's unnecessary. And it really just drove home a point that has become kind of a, a trope within TV of women being treated as just motive for men to take action. Yes, exactly. I And, and I think, thank you for bringing that up because to me... It's not necessarily the narrative of this episode that bothers me. It's the fact that this is a trope that comes back in this series. You know, like this, they're a repeat offender. No, and a lot of shows are guilty of it. I feel like it's very, it's unfortunately very low-hanging fruit to inspire, especially a show that focuses on two very forward-facing heteronormative male characters from all intent and purpose that we have right now. Yeah. It's very easy to give us, here is a love interest, let's brutalize hurt dispose of get rid of do something with Mm -hmm. to then allow us to go into our next segment of they now have to avenge get revenge for save it's i mean i've said in past episodes it's easy tv writing for early 2000s yeah exactly exactly and i think yeah there you go i think right now what we're trying to make sense of is the whiplash that we're getting by watching this piece of tv that was made for 2005 in 2020 mm-hmm. after me too and after time's up so yeah i think we we're both getting a bit of whiplash from that and trying to make sense and make meaning out of it as much as we can well drew are you ready to make a crossroads deal yes i'm gonna yeah. let you go first because i'm afraid that we both have very similar ones this week oh. i'm getting a vibe <laughs> But I'm intrigued to see exactly where you go because I can pivot mine a little bit. Okay, thank you. I mean, mine is, if you've listened to the episode, you know exactly where I'm going. 
I just want one of the brothers to tell Charlie it's not her fault and to maybe write the episode better. <laughs> you know, not use her pain as a crutch. And I, again, I understand that, you know, by telling her that it's not her fault, it takes away from like their quote unquote bro time afterwards. But I would be willing to let some of that go in order for Charlie to hear that it's not her fault that her boyfriend killed himself. I Again, that's very much where I was kind of heading with mine as well. I have a backup mm-hmm. one, which is nice. <laughs> but I really do agree with you. It really is a matter of, it's those, I think it's the, you know, I think it's the hindsight is 2020 thing. I think it's easy to look yeah. back at a show like this when you aren't the person. And I, again, I, I don't want to be an apologist, but these are people who are writing a show. It's a job they know who they have mm-hmm. to turn this script into and what those people want. Mm-hmm. We recently saw a, uh, to again, to go into other fandoms real quick, the uh, Ubisoft Montreal, we had a huge Me Too movement happening in the studio and yeah. revealed that a lot of the higher-ups were very anti-female main characters mm-hmm. to the point where there were like people were afraid to pitch it because they knew they would lose their jobs if they did. And mm-hmm. now that they finally have ousted the people in those positions... We now have a a new Assassin's Creed game from that same production company that actually uses the female protagonist as a very important crutch of the story. Yay. I mean, unfortunately, there has to be those reckonings, right? They have to happen Mm -hmm. in order for us to be able to, to speak more critically of these things because... If we had critiqued this episode back in 2005, I'm not 100%... Like, I I actually... Let me start that again. I am sure that I would not have been as critical of this because I didn't have that hindsight. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was very much... I mean, 15 years ago, I was was not even 20 years old. So (laughs) I would certainly not have thought... I would certainly have thought that it was Charlie's fault or I would... I mean, I would have gone along with that narrative arc. Or, or the narrative that the, the the writers were trying to build. Yeah, like I'm really intrigued as we get later on in the series, as we start getting to the, what we'll call the more modern mm-hmm. third of the season even, like figure anything from seasons 12 onward that were written in a very mm-hmm. post-Me Too in a very modern world. I'm curious to see how many of those tropes still appear. If there's a noticeable shift, I'm excited to reach that point. Unfortunately, still too many of those tropes happen. Yeah, that's just media, and the, that's media. Yes, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we'll still, we, we have until, you know, don't worry, we still have really harmful TV tropes happening at the very end of season 15, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have stuff to talk about about that. There'll I'm always be worried. terrible tropes to complain about. Yeah, there will always be terrible tropes to complain about, but I think with our Crossroads deal, we are able to, again, fix one other episode of Supernatural, you know, one episode at a time. So I, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with what we came up with here today. Yes. And if I may make my uh, deal at the roads, I think I, I think number one would be the same as yours. If I really like if I would if I could, I would just say like double down on yours. That's like really just like that is a glaring stain on the series and the show. And as I've said mm-hmm. from experience, it's a difficult thing to navigate. I mm-hmm. think it could have been done really well with more time to explore. But to avoid just cheaping out on our listeners and not giving them our a, a second opinion or a second option to discuss with them amongst themselves and to contact us about, I would like to have had a little more on Mary. Mm, yes, agreed. I know given how much, again, I think the biggest constraint is that this is a 45-minute show. They can't do everything. 
Mm-hmm. I would have, I don't really know what I would have given up per se or how, but maybe getting to the chase a bit sooner, like kind of giving us a, we've been on the case for a day or two now and skip having the go after the Dr. Shoemaker is the first death and then the friend is the mm-hmm. second death kind mm-hmm. of have them swept away a little more because they've been on this case for a day or two and they're finally putting it together, mm-hmm. letting them get to the detective with the unsolved uh, murder first a little earlier and let us learn a bit more about that scenario, maybe even find a way in the episode to avenge her in some way. Like, you know, he says, yeah. is the person is that person still alive? No, they passed away several years ago. Yeah. I would have liked them to have, like, maybe gone to question this person somehow revealed that he was responsible for her death and i'm not gonna say they should they should have killed him but they should have like you know made it very clear like what he did and they they know and like kind of give him his comeuppance in some way yeah and i think that's another upset of this episode is that there's no the only person who truly gets punished i mean apart from shoemaker jill is mary herself and uh and i think that speaks to the idea that like even though you have lived trauma, like it is never okay to perpetuate it onto others. No, I, I, I want to touch on that too. I, I totally, thanks for reminding me. It's a very interesting point that they, I don't want to say they let her kill herself, but they use her powers against her mm-hmm. in the sense of she is exactly what she hates. She's become the thing she hates. She is someone yeah. bringing death to people ultimately she believes deserve it but at the end of the day you are not you can't be judge jury and executioner that's not how mm-hmm. this works and ultimately like you said it also brings back the idea that vengeance doesn't really solve anything yeah right we talked about that a little bit in episode three mm-hmm. and i think that comes back here again and again you know there's no reflection on the side of the brothers thinking about you know that revenge doesn't really get you anywhere they're just not there yet, right? So. No, it's it's nice, again, that it's leaving us these breadcrumbs, like in mm-hmm. episode three, of we are encountering, we are learning something about vengeance, about the characters, about the world, mm-hmm. through these creatures and these yeah. stories mm-hmm. that only help us better grasp the narrative they're trying to build for us. No, I think those are two very good crossroads. I, I Like I said, definitely yours is the one I wanted to go with, but I didn't want to take it away <laughs> from you. But I'm also happy I got to say my piece as well about Mary. The, you know, poor thing. She suffered too. It just doesn't give her the right to go on a killing spree. She was a teenager who was dating someone who had a wife who looked like, who was a surgeon. So clearly in his 30s. I mean, this is really predatorial. I I just, anyway, I did not like this episode. (laughs) Again, problematic in many ways. Yeah. And again, why I feel she deserves some level of, of I hate to say vengeance, but some level of like... Closure. Closure. Thank you. That's the word I wanted. Closure. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like so much of the show is going to be about getting closure in ways that we shouldn't be getting it. Oof. Why do I foresee this? Ugh. Oh my God. Don't think about... It. Don't, don't say these <laughs> things. Don't say these things. Oh, well, that does bring us to the end of our episode. And I do want to reach out quickly to our listeners and do invite them, especially with the crossword deals. I think there are so many things we can talk about in this that with only two, we are limiting ourselves. But yeah. I want to leave those doors open for fans to come in and tell us what they what deals they would make, whether you agree or disagree with ours. Yes. I, send us an email. Yeah. An email or a voicemail. Yeah. I would love to one day go back and visit like our favorite, like, oh, we had a fan for episode X suggest crossword deals why why didn't we think of this or like 
<laughs> what are the uh, the ramifications of it? I just there's a lot of room there to to converse. You know, give us our jumping off points. We love those. Exactly. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including some special episodes. Leave us a review on whatever platform you choose to use. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Carrying Wayward. We always love to hear from our listeners. Send us a voicemail or even just an email at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Until next time. Carry on our wayward friends.